Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and yes, we are a day late in publishing. Uh, I live in one of the regions in Australia that has been impacted by catastrophic flooding. My family and I are safe uh, and we have electricity, we have food, which is um, more than some others have at the moment. But yeah, the town I live in, the actual centre of the town, it has been absolutely smashed and there's no fixed line or cellular services available in the entire region. So thankfully the M1 freeway opened up again last night. So today I was able to drive interstate to the Gold Coast uh, where Australian cybersecurity re recruiter Ricky Burke lives and uh, he is very kindly letting me work out of his place today. So huge thanks to Ricky from Cybersec People. Uh, if you need to recruit some people in Australia, uh, hit him up. Uh, so thanks to Ricky for making this week's show happen. Uh, what a champion. And I will just let you know that this week's show won't be as heavily edited as usual. As you can understand, I'm massively behind, so I just won't be able to do as much uh, post-production work as usual. Sorry about that. But yes, we do have a great show for you this week. We'll be talking through the week's security news with Adam Boileau and Dmitry Alperovich, our special guest this week, and that is coming up in just a moment. And then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with Sherrod DeGrippo from Proofpoint, and she'll be reminding everyone that there's no magic wand that she or anyone else can wave that's going to keep you safe from possible Russian attacks. Uh, so we really need to look at doing some of the fundamentals right. Uh, she also says orgs need to get their act together on east-west monitoring. Uh, and we do talk to her a little bit about Emotet because Sherrod is a uh, is is someone who tracks Emotet very, very closely. It's almost like a little friend at this point. Um, that is coming up later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friends Adam Boileau from CyberCX and Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder of CrowdStrike, uh, who is these days the founder and director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. And guys, um, yeah, what a week. I feel like the flooding disasters around me uh, are almost like appropriate because they've put me in the correct frame of mind for talking through this week's news. But look, obviously we're going to, a big thing that we're going to be talking about uh, this week is all of the drama in uh, Ukraine uh, after Russia invaded, you know, a day after we uh, last published. It's, um, you know, it's an awful, awful thing to see. But I suppose the big surprise in all of this, and Dimitri, let's start with you. Everyone was expecting a cyber war and we got an information war instead. And uh, at least in, in, in that domain, uh, Ukraine is absolutely mopping the floor with Russia. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Uh, now, on the expecting the cyber war front, you and I, Patrick, talked about this extensively uh, before the war began. As you know, I was always a skeptic that cyber would play a significant role. I thought that maybe the Russians would do some tactical operations in the early stage of the conflict, maybe take down the mobilization databases that the Ukrainians would use to call up reserves, to call up volunteers to join the military. Um, I also thought that they would go after the comms, both kinetically by taking out internet exchange points through bombing strikes and uh, jamming the airwaves through their extensive uh, electronic warfare units that they did bring to the border uh, from, in some cases, from thousands of miles away from Vladivostok all the way in the Far East. Um, and yet we saw none of that. And only this week I started to appreciate why that is. And it turns out that the Russians, for reasons that I still cannot comprehend, do not have secure military comms in their units that they've deployed to Ukraine, that they're using cell phones for communication, they're using consumer tactical radios, and yep. as a result, they can't jam the airwaves because that, they would impact themselves. It's really, think, really quite I think, though, stunning. Dimitri, we've got to be a little bit careful here because um, undoubtedly there's been some spillover uh, with Russian troops using analog radios and civilian technology, cellular tech and, and all of that sort of stuff. Undoubtedly there's been some spillover. But it's not clear to us or anyone really uh, the extent of that spillover and how much they're using this as their, as their primary communications. But yes, that is one of the things we were going to talk about this week, which is that Russian troops on the ground are using completely insecure comm methods to the point where ham, ham radio Radio operators are like uh, blocking their comms and intercepting their stuff. And you would imagine, too, that the Ukrainians are getting NSA support with all of this. And, you know, it's just a goldmine. When I first saw the tweets going around about this, I quote tweeted one with that little image of the of the Facebook thumbs up with NSA likes this. Um, Adam, you know, you're, you're a bit of a, a, a radio uh, enthusiast. I mean, could you believe these stories? It is it is pretty crazy. I mean, the Russian military, you know, has been around for a long time and does, you know, understand how to do electronic warfare, but 
yeah, like seeing people with, you know, live software-defined radio feeds, you know, streaming military comms from the middle of, you know, a tank fight. I mean, this there's is some the thing, that- like if it, weren't, if it weren't so easy to verify, I would have thought it was, you know, people were making it up. The thing that first gave it credence for me is that it was being retweeted by the whole Bellingcat set. And then you yes. see, yeah, you, you know, this is actually something that's happening. Yes, and, and I mean some of the radio communications you've you know that we've seen streamed around the place. I mean, it really just does sound like you know people who grew up playing Modern Warfare or you know Call of Duty or something for the like the quality of the trash talk uh, between the opposing forces here. But you know, we, uh, it, it's funny how like our expectations of what this would look like in terms of the you know the cyber and comms and and that uh, you know those kinds of domains. Just yeah, it, it's been quite different than what we expected, and the level of you know, kind of the quality of Ukrainian government internet trolling has just been oh. spectacular. I mean, like, I think one of the latest ones is they've just said that if you capture a Russian tank, don't worry, you don't have to declare it as income to the tax office, right? <laughs> exactly, like, yes. just brilliant. And my, another one I saw was this very pretty, you know, uh, a blonde Ukrainian woman doing a how to drive, you know, captured Russian. Uh, you know, armoured um, armored personnel carriers, you know, she's in there saying, oh, you flick this switch and then, hey, off we go, we, you know, it just, just incredible. I think Dan Guido summed it up best when he posted a tweet the other day uh, saying, don't get into an information war with a, um, a, a, against an extremely online comedian, uh, of which, you know, Zelensky actually <laughs> is. Dimitri, I mean, you know, you and I have been talking, obviously, over the last, over the last week since this started, just about the information war component to this. And, you know, there is, it is, there is no question who's coming out ahead, and 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 I think you know this the the success Ukrainians have had with messaging has even been driving a lot of the West's response to this. Like it's I've never seen more effective propaganda in my life. It is remarkable. Well, you know, one of the lessons that we'll take away from this conflict, uh, among many, is that if you're going to engage in an information war, don't uh, go up against a showman, a TV showman. Yeah. The Zel- yeah. Zelensky is doing. Such a magnificent job, but really all of Ukrainians, uh, not just in standing up to Russia, but in terms of spreading information about their successes, some real and some fake. You know, we had the Snake Island incident where the Ukrainian defenders allegedly told the Russian warship that asked them to surrender to go uh, and expletive themselves. And uh, in in uh, in and the initial story came out that they all perished as a result of the attack. Well, now we know that they actually did apparently surrender and that this wasn't the Ukrainian Alamo. But my favorite is actually the story of this ghost pilot, ghost fighter. The the, the ghost of Kiev, yes. The ghost of Kiev, who has single-handedly up to this point, and I'm keeping tabs on this, has shot down 21 Russian planes. I mean, if this guy keeps going, he'll take out single-handedly the whole Russian Air Force in a couple of weeks here. (laughs) Uh, And by the way, uh, today is actually the first time that I've actually seen uh, the first shot down Russian plane, the Su-25, that was indeed brought down. But there's no evidence of any of the transport planes or any of their other fighters being shot down, despite the claims uh, that the Ukrainians have no, made. No, but I mean, this is the thing. Days. It's clear that they're lying, but these are the lies that we want to believe, right? And that's the that's what's making the information campaign so successful. But look, we are a cybersecurity podcast. Uh, we are not a uh, you know information war podcast. But look, I you know just again, I think the thing that's relevant here, the thing that we're trying to get across is that the cyber dimension to this thing thus far is quite limited. We've seen some reports that have been debunked. There was apparently massive BGP hijacking in the you know, southeastern region of, of Crimea. Uh, Patrick Howell O'Neill, actually uh, from Technology Review, MIT Technology Review, did a good job of debunking that. Um, but there is a lot happening. Uh, we've got, you know, disinformation being spread about signals saying, oh, it's not safe, Ukrainians don't use it, right? Which gives you a pretty good indication when they're spreading that in, uh, disinformation that it that it is something they're having trouble with, right? So uh, that's one thing to bat away. Uh, that's some sort of cybersecurity related disinformation. Uh, we're seeing phishing campaigns targeting European officials who are assisting in refugee operations. We've seen the, uh, the cyber partisans from Belgium Belarus uh, stick their heads up again and uh, try to interfere with the rail network. Now, when they first did this, Adam, you and I spoke about it and said, well, you know, it's it's a nice symbolic protest, but it's probably not going to uh, do that much to interfere with Russia's campaign. I'd imagine we're sticking with that assessment, even though it's nice to see them do this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember there's been the impact that we saw reported from that was much the same as last time, the inability to buy tickets and that sort of thing. I guess the, the 
Belarusian military probably don't have to buy tickets to get on the train, although you know, I don't know what the budgeting's like. Uh, but yeah, we like much of the cyber in this conflict, like it's still so early on and we really don't know what the impact is, you know, the actual practical impact's going to look like and whether it's, you know, kind of done anything beyond symbolic. I mean, the, you know, that call by the vice president of Ukraine to, you know, put together, a, you know, anyone who wants to on Telegram to go hack a big list of Russian banks and, and oil and gas and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, that seemed unprecedented. I mean, we're in yeah. a crazy world these days. I mean, that's that's just not a thing. Well, they're asking people to literally before, to literally but... come in, pick up a weapon, and, and start fighting, right? So it's 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 you know all rules out the window, pretty much. But, but start fighting much. against civilian targets in Russia, I think that's a little bit different. Mm. And and people have to remember, at least in the United States, you have universal jurisdiction for the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that basically covers hacking. So oh, well, come on, Dimitri. I can't imagine a U.S. prosecutor is going to be, uh, you know, charging people, staking their career on charging people for hacking Russian banks during the Ukraine crisis. But I do get what <laughs> you mean. Probably not, but still. Yeah, it's, no. it, it is illegal. I do yeah, get what I mean, you mean. And I, look, this is a lead into what I was going to talk about next, which is there's been a lot of sort of hacktivist and vigilante-style activity on both sides. We've seen DDoS uh, attacks targeting Russian interests. But uh, it's a little bit confusing because some of these DDoS attacks, people are saying, hey, tango down but actually Russia's been geofencing a lot of its more critical stuff uh, to avoid precisely this from impacting them. Dimitri, what do we know about how much trouble Russia is having on the DDoS front and just, you know, people going around and trying to run wipers on them and stuff? This is at most a nuisance. Putin has much bigger problems right now, both in Ukraine and actually what's going on inside Russia where the jails are filling up because of all the protesters that are coming out against the war. A lot of people that have supported him for the last two decades are turning on him as a result of this conflict. This is not popular at all. So a bunch of DDoS attacks are really the least of his problems. But, you know, on the broader point of the cyber attacks, uh, I made this point on Twitter today that the reality is that cyber is a perfect tool to use in that gray zone conflict between peace and war. But once conflict actually starts, once we are at war, it is not a fantastic tool to achieve your objectives. Kinetic weapons take over, and maybe cyber will have some tactical advantages like I talked about in taking out mobilization databases at the early stage of the conflict. But if you want to take out the power, if you want to take out TV stations, you're seeing that done kinetically by the Russians right now. Uh, much more effective, much easier, and you know that it, when there's a crater there, it's permanently down. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't we see, though, a Ukrainian newspaper publish the names of like 120,000 Russian soldiers or something? I mean, it's hard to know if that list is yeah, genuine. I, I, I haven't did had a look chance at, to look. I did look at that leak quite extensively. It actually was not 120,000. It was more like 6,000. And the timestamps on that data are a couple of years old. So um, it does look like real data of Russian soldiers, which you can easily buy sort of on the underground channels like you can do with so many of the Russian databases. But it doesn't look like it's at all related to, to the invasion force. Now, you were on the show recently saying that, you know, if there are heavy sanctions, Russia will be motivated to sort of cause havoc around the world, you know, maybe co-opt some ransomware groups and, and you know, just unleash... Uh, unleash hell on its enemies. You know, I, 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 in one sense, I think, you know, I, in one way, right, I've got a bit of cognitive dissonance going on here, so bear with me. In, in one way, I've come around to your point of view, which is Russia is kind of in a tricky situation right now and lashing out is uh, something that it, uh, that it might want to do. On the other hand, I don't think Russia was expecting the blowback it's received uh, from this invasion and it might have them recalculating a little bit what their best course of action is. I mean, but we've got Russian officials, you know, making comments about, gee, wouldn't it be bad if World War III started because it would be nuclear, you know? So it's, we're just in such uncharted territory, but I just wondered if you'd had a chance to revisit um, your, your thinking around whether or not when the, the war situation in Ukraine settles down, if it even does, uh, whether or not we can expect to see Russia uh, being a bad actor um, uh, and you yeah. know, just launching harassment campaigns against the West, etc. Yeah, no, I still think it's li very likely, um, you know, th they're understandably a little busy right now because the war is not going as well as they thought it would be. The last thing they want to do right now is start another front with the West, even if it's just in cyberspace. So I think they probably put a pause button on retaliation at the moment until they can get Ukraine sorted out or at least in a, in a better shape than, it, than, than the war is going right now for them. But I do think it's coming because the reality is they're cornered. 
not just economically, but diplomatically, they're so isolated now. You saw the vote in the UN take place today where only five countries, Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, and, and a few others uh, that, that, that have actually uh, voted well, with, a block with the Russians like that on behind them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, there were a bunch of like China and India that abstained, but the fact that they couldn't even get those countries to support them, I think, speaks volumes. So, but see, um, this, see, this, they, is why, this is why I question whether or not it's in their interests to go hammer and tongs attacking Western targets, because the response has been so big that, you know, if they start ransomwareing stuff or wiper attacks on US interests, like, they'll just wind up getting clicked off the internet. You know, because these responses have been have been so huge. Now, look, let's let's look at that for a second. Apple has decided to stop selling its products in Russia, which has led to some prominent Russians spruiking this uh, homegrown smartphone. Which and it's advertised. One of its privacy features is it has a switch on it that disables the camera and the microphone, which is fantastic. But the phone is literally made by a Russian state-owned defense contractor, which I just find <laughs> very very funny. I mean, Adam, this is starting to look like they're going to be they're going to be going full Red Star Linux on us uh, pretty soon. Yeah, and we've talked, you know, over the last couple of years about the work that they've put into, you know, having independent DNS infrastructure, having independent, you know, TLS certificate authorities, being able to operate the Russian internet, you know, in isolation and still be able to run basic services. You know, whether that extends to doing it without Windows patching. Obviously, we saw that call by Ukraine uh, to Western tech companies to stop providing security patches uh, to Russia. And that's a, you know... That, that's how you end up with Red Star Linux, I guess. Maybe they could ask the North Koreans to, you know, lend it to <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, them, give but them a fork, you know. Get, yeah, just fork I mean, them the branding still away, works, Microsoft. right? Like, it's, you know, it's a yeah, Red Star yeah, country, yeah. so why not? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what the fallout is. I mean, obviously, the isolation from Western tech firms, you know, that's a thing that, you know, well, look, I guess look, we don't look really you understand. just mentioned it, and it is one of the things that I wanted to talk about was this idea that Ukraine has asked, you know, Microsoft to stop shipping Windows patches to Russia. I personally think that's a terrible idea. And the reason I think that's a terrible idea is because it makes uh, it makes using American technology extremely risky for all countries, right? Like they're going to have to look at that and say, well, maybe we need to ban the use of Microsoft products because if we get into a disagreement with the United States, we're going to lose support and that's going to be catastrophically damaging, right? So I think there is an angle to it where it would be very, very damaging to to um, uh, United States interests to do that. So that's one area where I think it's wrong. The other area where I think it's wrong is if you allow OS rot to spread into all institutions in Russia, you know, a ransomware hospital in Russia is as bad as a ransomware hospital in the United States. You know, let's not forget that the actions of the Russian government, you know, it doesn't mean that the Russian people should be um, punished for that. I mean, even you look at these images of these kids being captured in Ukraine and they're like, they're kids. You know what I mean? They don't know what the f*** they're doing in life. They're kids. They they look like they're fresh out of high school. Some of them look like they should still be in high school, right? So I just feel like this this would be needlessly punitive and kind of bad for America anyway. Well, there's a third element to this, which is that the more computers that are unsafe and unsecure on the internet, the worse it is for everyone. The more botnets we have, the more DDoS attacks as a result and so forth. So I, I don't think it's a good idea to uh, not send patches to you know everyone in russia that just sounds sounds terrible to me for the security of the internet yeah well there's also been demands that um you know dot tlds get shut down i mean but these are coming from ukraine they're just throwing everything they can but you know it's sort of like these calls for a no-fly zone from people who don't actually understand what a no-fly zone is which means that you know nato forces would enter ukrainian airspace and fight russia to establish air dominance right like that's what a no-fly zone is it means war it means war it means going to war with russia in one domain um but i sort of feel like some of these some of these demands coming through on the internet side feel a bit similar is that your sense as well yeah, I mean, you can't blame the Ukrainians for trying everything they possibly can to hit back at Russia, uh, particularly asymmetrically. But some of these proposals are very dangerous. And, you know, even North Korea, for God's sakes, is on the Internet and has an IP space allocation and a TLD domain. Uh, it would be without precedent, I think, to take it um, away from a major country like Russia. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that it's justified. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and again, that sort of undermines that that idea of what I was talking about earlier, which is that, um, you know, that they just get booted off the internet for, for launching attacks. I mean, you can't really disconnect a country, can you? It's just not ever going to be the right choice. 
No, no, absolutely not. And again, like you're going to hurt a lot of people. There are a lot of people that are using the internet right now in Russia to try to organize protests. A lot of very brave individuals that are getting arrested. There's a heartbreaking story about a mother with two little kids, five-year-olds, that uh, girls that uh, went to the Ukrainian embassy to lay flowers and was arrested with the children and sent to jail overnight. Um, so just heartbreaking stories. And you got to make sure that we try to support these people. Look, let's move on. We've got some other stuff to talk about, um, which is, you know, in a sense, kind of related. Let's talk about the implosion of the Conti ransomware crew. Adam, I want to get you started off on this. This is this is just incredible, right? So early in the week, I suggested to Tom Uren, who writes our Seriously Risky Business newsletter, that he should look into this one, like, because this is going to be, this is going to be good. So let's start with the basic outline of the story. Adam, what happened to Conti this week? Uh, so Conti uh, came out as a primarily Russian organisation, came out in support of Russia in the conflict with Ukraine uh, and posted a you know, nasty gram uh, on the internet saying that they were going to hack lots of Western countries and ruin them, uh, especially if people attacked Russian institutions. Uh, I believe they then, specifically said American critical infrastructure. Uh, but yes, yes. go on. <laughs> if, if, I mean, if Russian critical infrastructure is attacked. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, and then we saw somebody else pop up and say, uh, Conti's stuff has been wrecked. Here is a big dump of all their things, you know, glory to Ukraine. Uh, and posted a, you know, giant tarball on the internet, uh, which turned out to be, amongst other things, uh, filled with the JSON log files from their, like, internal rocket chat instance, <laughs> whereupon they did all of their crime running business. Uh, and this turned out to be legitimate. There was, you know, a few people were worried at first that maybe it wasn't, but no, it looks pretty legit, plus a bunch of other things you know tooling and bits of code and you know all sorts of stuff going back you know a few years uh, and also uh, some of it up to you know quite present day um, and so this has turned into a feeding frenzy amongst you know threat analysts and one of them know, uh, one of them has described this leak to me as manna from heaven uh, basically <laughs> they've said it's just it's just spectacular now the reason I mentioned that Tom was looking into this is because he noticed something um, before it was sort of people were talking about it publicly, but he noticed that if you look at the coverage of a similar thing happening to TrickBot uh, a few months ago, a lot of the names in the, a lot of the handles in the TrickBot crew are also part of the Conti crew. So now we've got this really strong attribution tying key members of Conti to TrickBot. This is kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be so many interesting insights in this set of data. I was reading, uh, Brian Krebs has been working through uh, some of this data as well, and he also called out that, you know, tie between, uh, you know, Ryuk and TrickBot and Conti, uh, and actually found some a conversation where uh, one of the, the research groups, you know, posted their data about the links between, uh, I think it was Ryuk and, and Conti, uh, and there was some, you know, people posting that in the internal chat going, hey, that's my batch file. Like, what's it doing in, in Ryuk? And it turns out, yeah, that maybe even some of the people who work there didn't understand the lineage or the relationships between the groups. But I mean, just overall, seeing inside the like water cooler chat of any business, you know, mm. as a hacker, that's the thing I always go after because, you know, it, it just gives you a flavor, gives you a bunch of ideas, lets you know what's broken, where to go. I mean, um, some, of the so seeing, some of the Twitter threads on this are amazing because people are generally pretty happy with their working conditions and like they've got a couple of juniors who are kind of keep making dumb mistakes. And it's like, it's a very, they've, they put in leave requests for God's sakes. Like it's, it's really... <laughs> It really is that thing that we've been talking about on the show uh, for quite a while, which is the professionalization of this sort of crime. Yes, but but, yeah. but one of the reasons I find this interesting, initial reports said that this was a disgruntled Ukrainian insider, right? Who, who uh, Subsequent reports have convinced me that uh, this was probably actually a researcher who had long-term links um, into both TrickBot and... Um, Oh, Dimitri's shaking his head, so this would be interesting. Might have been a researcher <laughs> who had long-term links into um, into both TrickBot and um, uh, and uh, Conti. But what I do find interesting is, you know, we could be seeing the beginning of a bit of a civil war in the cybercrime underground because Ukrainians and Russians have been cooperating together to make money out of cybercrime for quite a long time. And, you know, a lot of the Ukrainians are taking the invasion of their country kind of personally, right? And they just want to burn it all down. So, Dimitri, my question for you, first of all, tell me why you were shaking your head and why you think this was actually an insider. And then tell me if you think that this could lead to a, um, to a genuine sort of civil war moment for the cybercrime underground because I think it's it's on the cards, man, if I'm going to be honest. No, I agree with you on the civil war. There's a lot of Ukrainian speakers in these groups because obviously when they go recruit people, they usually try to recruit Russian-speaking folks, um, a lot of them in the former Soviet Union and Belarus and Ukraine, 
Kazakhstan and, and other places. And many times they don't know who they're recruiting because, you know, no one is disclosing their identities and real names. So they have no idea where people live most of the time uh, for OPSEC reasons. And as a result, they're creating these fissures. But no, look, I, I don't know for certain that, it, that it's not an insider, but I do know that Conti definitely has Ukrainian members. So I do think it's highly likely that one of them decided to retaliate against the group's message and, and leak all this information. And, I mean, and, and the information truly is a goldmine. Well, this, I know is, this, this was going to be my next question, right? Because you were CTO of, uh, you know, of CrowdStrike for an awfully long time. And, um, you know, this is the sort of stuff I imagine that when you get your hands on it, even though you're not there anymore, it must be like, mm-mm, good, as Adam would say. Oh, huge. And particularly for law enforcement, for intel agencies that are pouring over this data. You have Bitcoin wallets. You have so much information that you can start tipping off other types of investigations that this is going to be used for many weeks to come to identify uh, group members. And remember, a lot of people kind of move from group to group. They don't have permanent affiliations, particularly affiliates that work with these ransomware groups. They, they, they may work with multiple groups at the same time. So it won't just impact Conti alone. It'll impact other groups for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's just hope we see more of this. I do have a feeling, though, that like as soon as they threatened the United States in the way they do, I do feel like... Um, they would have been getting a bit of a tickle at least from Cyber Command, right? There, there's an outside possibility that Cyber Command had something to do with this, but I do think it's much more likely to be actually a pissed off Ukrainian. I mean, there's certainly a lot of pissed off Ukrainians lately, so that <laughs> yeah, would make are. sense. And, and like the thing that struck me about this whole thing was like, if Russia was serious about tackling ransomware, you know, and cooperating with the West, like this is what it would actually look like. Like, let's just go take the whole bunch of data, dump it out, really ruin it uh, for them. And you know, it's nice to see it happen, even if it you know is for a reason that's terrible. And I've got to say, if like if you're in another, you know, Russian, Ukrainian, you know, Slavic region of the world crime group at the moment, you've got to be looking at this and thinking like, we need to just you know go take take a few deep breaths and step back and turn off our infrastructure for a while because like. You know, well, that's what they're doing, right? I'm, I'm here. I'm seeing reports this morning. The Conti servers are just going bing, bing, bing. You know, like they're just disappearing yeah. off the internet. Yeah. So no so surprises. That's def definitely a big shake up for the cybercrime world. And it's funny because you know we were, you know, in the lead up to this, and we were talking about like what are the things we were worried about. There was a lot of you know, well, the kind of fallout we saw from NotPetya, the kind of you know things spilling over, things escalating. And in some ways, like maybe this is actually going to result in you know, a lowering of overall risk to a lot of organizations because the ransomware crews have got to go do military service or they're imploding or whatever else. You know, there's a, you know, it's a, a disruptive of, event. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace, Conti. Yeah. RIP Conti, <laughs> yeah, they are yeah. gone. Like that's what people are, are saying too. And TrickBot shut down as well, right? So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, can't. Who, the who sort knew of that this war would be so good for the cybercrime? fighter ecosystem yeah that's <laughs> unintended true. consequences just get them fighting each other that's great um now i want to talk about some lulls uh involving nvidia the um hardware maker because there were some reports that turned out to be not really true unfortunately there were these these tweets and reports going around that a ransomware crew or a, or a you know data extortion crew had hacked in stolen a bunch of stuff from nvidia and then nvidia had managed to ransomware them and um you know th this was the story <laughs> unfortunately it looks like the way that the Attackers obtained access to NVIDIA is by is through their MDM solution. So they had to enroll their VM in NVIDIA's MDM. So when NVIDIA came and noticed the attack, they could actually remotely encrypt that VM because it was under their MDM management. Um, so that's what's happened. But it's still, you know, and they, this crew, this is the thing though, this crew is still claiming to have a copy of the data. Wouldn't it be funny if they didn't and it just got vaped because they left it in the VM? Yeah, that that would be a wonderful and beautiful thing. And I, you know, I do love the idea that you know MDM is the new hacking back. Like that's yeah, you know, now yeah. hacking back is okay because we have an enterprise product that supports it, and you can do it with a pointy clicking console. It's yeah, that was that story unfolding was a great fun, great fun to watch, and especially the you know alleged whinging from the ransomware ransomware crew about having their stuff ransomware. So yeah, they were having a good old sook about that. Um, they really were. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a few other stories we should just quickly run through. Uh, apparently, the crew known as Sandworm, has built a botnet out of, um, what is it, like WatchGuard boxes? Um, the reason I thought this one was significant is because these are border devices that are probably going to have decent, uh, uh, decent bandwidth. Yeah, this is not new. We have certainly seen Russians do this type of thing before, take over consumer routers and consumer firewalls. So this is more of the same and obviously very, very useful for launching DDoS attacks 
but they're not consumer. That's that's the thing that makes it interesting. WatchGuard yeah. doesn't make consumer stuff. Yeah, right? it's small, so you're gonna, small, medium businesses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're just going to think they're going to have um, uh, a bit more firepower than the average, you know, botnet made up of home ADSL D-links, right? So that's why I thought that one was kind of interesting. Uh, what else have we got here? We got a ransomware attack, a presumed ransomware attack on a parts supplier to Toyota, and they've had to shut down some plants. Is that right, Adam? Because yeah, it's not like we were having supply chain trouble already. Yeah, that's what the reporting says. That I think what fourteen Toyota plants uh, in Japan are down based on the other supply chain being attacked by something. The reporting wasn't super clear if it was ransomware, but I mean that's kind of what it fit it's the mold. Like it's for always that. ransomware that's, these days, right? Like, yeah, it's always it ransomware, is. exactly. And then there was a, a bit of hand wringing, like, "Oh my god, did the Russians, you know, hack Toyota's downstream supplier of, you know, bolts?" Probably not. And this the, is and this no, is the thing that we've not. been saying is if things kicked off in Ukraine, their operators were going to be a little bit busy with actual yes. you know stuff to do with Ukraine. Uh, but any idea on um, you know how that attack's shaking out, or is this just a preliminary report saying bad stuff happened? Yeah, we haven't seen uh, any updates. I don't think beyond the initial reporting that you know all of the factories were down. But um, you know, I'm sure for Toyota, that's a thing that's quite a priority. And of course, they've had some experience with dealing with you know, cyber attacks as well, you know, after the Toyota itself incident a year and a half, two years ago. Now, we've also got uh, a couple of reports here about a Chinese security company that has released details on what it says is a, uh, you know, equation group or NSA uh, uh, operation. The reports seem a little bit vague and it looks like they're trying to attribute attack activity that may have happened as far back as like 2013 and they've tied it using the shadow brokers leaks. Adam, have you looked into this one at all? Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of attribution from China, you know, with technical details. And there is a bit more technical detail in the write-up from Pangulab uh, than we have seen in the past. There's some actual, you know, ISCs, things, you know, some hashes and stuff that you can go hunt for, uh, go, you know, dig up some of the tooling perhaps uh, from online repositories. But, I mean, the piece of software they're talking about does look like a pretty sweet high-end Unix backdoor, you know, with a bunch of, you know, the sorts of OPSEC tricks that you would imagine that the NSA was going on. And, you know, the, their write-up did seem to suggest that, you know, they had taken stuff from the Shadow Brokers leaks and some of the other, you know, tooling leaks and then gone back and hunted for it uh, and then found some of these, or at least tied together some previous investigations that they had done to then be able to try and put together the attribution puzzle. This is historical activity then? Yeah, so they had seen this, I think, back in the mid-2010s. They had scenes and boxes that were showing signs of compromise, and they found some tooling, but they didn't really understand who and what, and then they've now gone back and, uh, and analysed stuff that came out during the, the various leaks of tools. So certainly interesting. Um, you kind of expect the NSA to be up in China's business with some sweet tools. So, yeah. you know, that seems like situation normal. And I will, uh, I will say a shout out to people at the fort this week too, because I imagine that they're quite busy, uh, you know, actually doing some pretty, you know, some pretty important work, right? And I imagine it's quite stressful, but you know, it must be, uh, it must be great being on the on the right side of one of these, right, where there's a there's a pretty clear, um, a, a, a pretty uh, uh, clear thing that you should be doing. But uh, Dimitri, you wanted to say something there. You know, the 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 reality is, I was thinking about it today that when you see the the bad morale. Of the Russian troops going to Ukraine, the fact that they had no idea why they're there, the pretax was not done uh, adequately to, to really prepare them to fight these people that are a brotherly nation. In large part, it's because of the work that the NSA had done and others in the intel community to declassify and advance the intelligence about the uh, false flag operations that the Russians were going to do and really abandon them. Uh, without any attempt to even do a pretext uh, in the end and have Putin claim that Ukraine is going to build nuclear weapon, which obviously no one even in Russia uh. believes. And I think it had real effects on, on the ground in Ukraine as a result of the demoralization of the Russian troops. Well, and this is, this is what we were talking about at the top of the show, right? Which is the information war has actually turned out to be the, to be the one that's, uh, that seems to be having an effect, even on the ground. You can see it in morale. Uh, morale uh, is obviously very important in a conflict like this too. And I do need to give you a pat on the back, Dimitri. I was going to do it at the top of the show and I forgot to. You predicted this invasion... Uh, in a Twitter thread that you posted, um, the date in Australia was the 22nd of December last year. Now, I remember this because you actually sent me that thread in advance basically to proofread it for you and see if I could find, you know, spelling mistakes or little, you know, missing words or whatever because it was quite a long thread. And I remember saying to you, you know, if you publish this and you're wrong, you're going to catch hell for it forever. You're really going to damage your reputation. Um, you know, I'd, I'd think twice about publishing this. And you just said to me, but I'm right. 
Uh, and it turns out, <laughs> Dimitri, uh, you really were. So, yes, everybody should go follow uh, Dimitri on Twitter because, um, you know, he's, he's certainly uh, proven to be a, a, an accurate forecaster. Uh, of all things, of all things happening in Russia, Ukraine at the moment, um, we've just got two stories to blast through uh, before we wrap up the news. Adam, uh, we've we've spoken a couple of times about the IRS using this ID.me, uh, you know, third-party verification service that can either use you know facial biometric recognition or interviews with live agents. Um, you know, the IRS went all in with it and then they cancelled it. Now it looks like um, uh, taxpayers in the United States will be able to opt in and use this service if they want to, which few feels like it might be the right place for something like this to wind up. Yeah, we've definitely seen a bit of a, of a turnabout with uh, the fallout they got from this. And yes, you can opt into a, like a live video interview with the service uh, if you want to, or you can use their other methods of authentication and, and authorization uh, when you're setting up your account. Uh, they've also put out some statements uh, talking about what's going to happen to the biometric data already collected by this third party. Um, and yeah, it sounds like that's going to at least get deleted. And yeah, it's good conversation being had about you know why they weren't using the government's authentication system and processes for this, why it was with a third party uh, and yeah i mean anytime we're handling biometric data these are good questions to ask you know about how long the data is going to live what that long tail is what else it can be used for because you know you can't change your your face or your fingerprints super easily no adam if you're asking that question i can only infer that you have not interfaced much with the government u.s government technology <laughs> because that would be the answer right away of why we would prefer a private sector solution <laughs> uh, and the last story we're going to talk about, and this one is right up your alley, Adam. And, and I feel like this is a bit of technology news that I kind of feel like we, we, we're, doing, we're doing good work in spreading the word about this one. Because <laughs> so some Cisco firewalls, you've got to update them or you're not going to get any more updates due to an expiring certificate. Is that right? Like they've got their, they operate like <laughs> yes. their own CA and there's been some sort of lapse or someone forgot to do something. Uh, and basically you need to update your device now or it's just not going to get future updates. Yeah. Is that about right? So this is, yeah, this is, that's pretty much it. Like for Cisco devices that use uh, like security intelligence feeds from Cisco's Talos unit, uh, so things like you know block lists and, and whatever information that they provide. Um, yes, they appear to have, I guess, probably pinned the certificate because some pen tester in a report told them that they should pin the certificate. <laughs> and here we are, certificate expiry later, and they've realized that, yes, if they don't roll an update to replace that pinning or replace the certificates now, then when it expires, you're never going to get another update, which is great for me because it shows that someone read a pen test report and acted on it and did the thing that we recommended. The fact that the recommendation was trash, okay, we'll, we'll take that one on the chin. But yes, uh, if you are an admin for a Cisco device, you're probably used to patching by now. So, you know. But are, uh, these, are these boxes that are likely to have... Um that are likely to have admins touching them a lot or are they sort of set and forget whatever auto block and that's, the, that's why you buy them? Uh, well, so, so this is across the range of Cisco products. So it kind of depends whether you've bought the like the license and subscribed to these particular feeds, you know, whether or not it is applicable to your device. But anyway, some of these are things that you are going to, you know, like the actual firewalls or, you know, their firepower gateways and stuff, things that you might actually mess with pretty often. Um, but yeah, a bunch of this probably is just sitting in branch offices yeah. and is just going to stop one day and then never well, it's get gonna the stop. update. It's going to stop the, on March 5. We know that, Adam. Yeah, so, um, very, very soon. Two more days and then the next trouble you know, admin that. admin or... And troubleshooting that if you don't know what's going on is going to be a real <laughs> hard job. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just hope there's no more like, you know, Cisco, Cisco bugs, uh, you know, user password Cisco uh, on these devices ever to be found ever again, because yeah, they're going to join a Russian botnet before you know it. Well, I mean, that, as I say, that's why I kind of suggested that we talk about this one, because it's one of those <laughs> things that like, it's kind of that news story that would slide under the radar a bit. And yeah, people, a little bit aren't, right now. Yep. people aren't going to know that you've got to do this thing. So I just thought we'd, <laughs> we'd try to do the audience a favor and say, um, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'm sure yeah, Cisco go, go emailed them, but like, who's got time to check that, that stuff? Yeah, right? so. yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, but that's <laughs> Public actually, service announcement by Western <laughs> Business. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but that's actually it for the week's news. Uh, a remarkably smooth uh, recording session given everything that's going on uh, around me. <laughs> Um, so thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dimitri. Um, it's been a real pleasure to chat to you both. And um, Adam, we'll be chatting to you again next week. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then.
That was Dimitri Alperovich and Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to them for that. Now, before we get into this week's sponsor interview, I would like to mention that I've published another product demo to YouTube. Uh, this time it's a 40-minute platform overview of Auth0 with its co-founder and CEO, Eugenio Pace. And it's it's look, it's a really great video. He builds like a Hello World app, adds Auth to it, integrates it with uh, Enterprise Auth, and just really walks through that whole uh, journey, if you will. Um, so it's a great overview. I'll link through to that in this week's show notes. Uh, but yes, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now. And this week's sponsor guest is Sherrod DeGrippo from Proofpoint. And while they're best known for email security, Proofpoint actually does sell a network product as well. This means Sherrod, as Vice President of Threat Research and Detection at Proofpoint, has some pretty decent insight into what's going on out there thanks to the breadth of the products Proofpoint actually offers. And she says, yeah, there is probably going to be drama with Russian threats, but as you will hear, there's no magic advice that she can give anyone. The elevated threat level just means we actually have to do the basics right now. So here is Sherrod. The hard truth here is all of those things that we say, we have to actually do them now. Every organization needs to actually follow their patch management program. They have to actually do network monitoring. As you and I have talked about before, ingress, egress. For me, if you don't know what's happening on your network, you don't have any idea what's going on to begin with. And so I think there's this idea that I'll get on a call with a CISO and say, I have some Yeah, you got to Russian... dispense some amazing golden yeah. truth nugget that's going to blow their minds. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've got these magic beans from Odessa and we're going <laughs> to grow them. It, it's not like that. Um, you know, I think the threat is absolutely elevated, but the ways that we combat those threats have not changed. And so you have to actually do your security hygiene you need to understand what's going in and out. That's the thing for me. My philosophy is information security is securing information. How does information become insecure? It travels, period. Very rarely do you ever hear about some local information disclosure where somebody sits down at a computer and that's the breach. That's not the breach. The breach is always leveraging a network of some kind. And so know your network, know your data, you're safe, but that's a lot of work. That's a simple way to say a lot of work. Yeah, exactly, right? Now, you made the point earlier uh, before we got recording that both Russia and Ukraine associate, are associated with hacking the internet. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, in Ukraine's case, they have, a, have an extremely active, uh, you know, cyber criminal underground. Uh, and in Russia's case, they're much more associated both with, I guess they're associated with the crime stuff, but also um, having an extremely aggressive um, uh, group of, of government agencies that go and that go and hack stuff as well. But I guess, you know, we'd just be speculating if we were going to try to indicate to anyone how it's going to go. But I guess one thing you wanted to do was flag that this conflict is a little bit unique in that you've got two countries with who, who, who both have some capability there. I think that's important to note. Speculate as much as you want. We've never seen this before. This is the first one. This is the first time that heavily cyber capable countries have been engaged in kinetic conflict like this. Ukraine, it is one of the biggest powerhouses when it comes to cyber crime. I mean, they operate the threat actor groups that were the most um, dangerous in history. And then of course, Russia's really famous for its state-sponsored program. They're well-developed, they're mature, they know what they're doing, and they have an entire cyber criminal capability. We've just never seen that before, right? Like every kinetic conflict we've seen in the past has been relatively uneven from the cyber capability side of it. In this case, I mean, Ukraine's got a lot of power when it comes to the cyber side of things. Now, of course, you know, the most recent, um, uh, the most recent thing we've seen in that conflict was uh, wiper attacks against, uh, against Ukrainian interests. Now, I'm guessing that given this conflict has a chance to spill out a bit, at least on the internet, that you would have taken a bit of a look at that campaign and, um, you know, tried to tool up Proofpoint a bit to, to detect that stuff in case they decide to start deploying it more widely, shall we say. I mean, was there anything novel in the analysis uh, that you did on that stuff that, that you want to talk about? Yeah, so that's a big part of what my uh, team does all day is create detections to put into the environments that our customers on the network, on the sandbox and email, all of those places. That's a big focus for us. We do it literally 24 seven. 
wipers we haven't seen in a really long time, especially not uh, deployed in a in a kind of wider way. These were mostly hitting uh, Ukraine and Latvia. We haven't seen it, but it looks like it's relatively widespread. We do have samples, so we were able to put detections um, into... I, I, I will just say too, like there's a bit of speculation that the reason it was turning up in Latvia is it was entering environments that had like a local network with, with a presence in both countries. So maybe, you know, the operators weren't targeting Latvia. It's just kind of how it worked out. Yeah. And you have to have active directory. So there's likely an earlier stage of this to get the wiper there, either a downloader, a remote access Trojan, some yeah, kind it's, of it's like lateral, lateral movement across a wide area network into Latvia is, is the, the, the theory that I've seen anyway. That's a really good theory. And I also think that it's really hard to, for a threat actor to know, am I on a machine in Latvia? I mean, that's kind of a tough one, especially when you're operating in region and you're trying to move quickly to wipe things. Yeah. You might not be super discerning in that area. Yeah. Yeah. But what did you find about this thing? You know, what, was there anything particularly interesting or novel about it? I think the most interesting thing about it specifically is that it it focuses on the group policy coming out of Active Directory, which means essentially that you've got to have elevated privileges to start, which again, goes back to what we said. If you're focusing on foundational security hygiene, this likely is not something that you're going to be a victim of because you've got your Active Directory locked down. You're looking at lateral movement. You have good segmentation. In this case, obviously, uh, that wiper requires uh, a network that's a little less defended, but get in there and do the work and you'll be okay. I think I think some of that lateral movement stuff is concerning to me because we've lost a lot of the focus on IDS from a East-West perspective. We're always looking at what's going in and out. A lot of organizations are not really doing a lot of inspection of their internal network traffic. And I think especially with adoption of the cloud, we have got to focus on internal host-to-host traffic. I know it's a lot. I know pulling NetFlow is big. I know this is heavy, high overhead, but you wanna know what your internal machines are saying to each other and what they're transmitting between each other. And the only way to do that is to inspect your internal traffic too. You know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's where a lot of the value is now, particularly in a world where a lot of your north-south traffic is TLS encrypted anyway, uh, and you don't right. have as meaningful insights into it. Like, there are there are a bunch of companies who are optimizing their tooling to do that now. I mean, I, I have noticed over the last five years, that's the typical conversation you get out of a network security vendor is like, we do east-west traffic and can spot funny, you know, funny communications patterns uh, between between hosts and whatever. But, you know, it is worth noting that, yeah, if you are still IDSing like it's 1999, it's probably not going to get you very far. And I think that IDS is one of the uh, least sexy um, security controls that are out there. A lot of people just don't think it's that hot. Uh, they like machine well, we learning, call it, artificial we don't call it IDS anymore. We don't. We call it That's NDR. Right. It's network detection response. And, you know, which which is kind or of XDR. like XDR. Oh, don't. Um, but that kind <laughs> of that kind of um, underscores what we're talking about, right? Because the focus on NDR is much more about that east-west stuff as opposed to north-south. We've got to rebrand our network traffic inspection capabilities as something super hot and sexy. Just yeah. make it the coolest thing. We need a marketing team on this, I think. Well, I mean, that's what NDR is, right? It's got a DR in it and EDR made people uh, a lot of money. So <laughs> that's got to be right. Now, look, uh, one thing I want to touch on quickly before you go Every time I see a news story about Emotet, I think of you because Emotet oh. was essentially your <laughs> hobby for years, right? Like you're one of those people who just loved tracking Emotet. You were involved in the group that ultimately took Emotet down. Emotet is back and building, and it looks like maybe even operated by different people, but it's definitely back. And I just sort of, I, I figure you've got mixed feelings about this because you were one of the people who was involved in trying to take it down, but it's almost nice to have your old adversary back. It's like Batman and Joker, you know, that, that sort of vibe. Am I, am I close? <laughs> That's an incredible characterization, Patrick. I love it. So Emotet, the reason I have always followed Emotet so closely is because it absolutely terrifies me to my core. It's more of a mental illness. Um, <laughs> I have it's a fixation. deep, deep anxiety around Emotet. Yeah. Because so many times in my job, I come into work in the morning, I open up chat and I see the night before everyone saying, oh my God, Emotet this. And I've woken up to that so many times in horror 
that, yeah, I, I developed a little bit of a kind of tick about it. But Emotet being back, and you and I talked about this a little bit um, before we got on the podcast, it's operating today as Ukraine is being invaded, which I find fascinating. Is Emotet going to be a bellwether for kinetic invasion to Ukraine? We'll keep watching it. If they stop sending, wow, does that mean that they were impacted by potential missile strikes? So you think the operators um, are probably in Ukraine? I I feel very strongly that the operators are based in Ukraine, whether they continue to remain there during this conflict, is I don't it, know. Is it a completely different crew to the ones who are rounded up for running Emotet? Like who's who's doing this new who's doing these new Emotet campaigns? That's a great question. And I would always defer to Cryptolamus and that side of the house on it because they're the number one fan, uh, number one watchers of Emotet. I think that it's a mix at this point. I don't think it's a completely new crew. I think it's that- It's the remaining these... members kind of spinning it up again. Yeah. I also think these kind of indictments in that region don't stick so well. I think that you can kind of get around that uh, in the justice system in Ukraine and in Russia if you- know the right lawyers and know the right things to do. So yeah. it's likely partly the same, partly some new blood, but they continue to operate and they've been doing campaigns just about every day for the past couple of weeks. And, you know, we watch Emotech come in, they're using a lot of password protected zip documents. Password protected zipped malicious documents are a huge part of the landscape. Emotech is a superstar when it comes to that, but we see just about every threat actor doing password protected zipped malicious documents. That's that's what it does day in, day out. Yeah. Any idea as to the scale of Emotet compared to what it was at its, you know, the pre-raid peak? Yeah, we're seeing volumes that are about 20, 30,000 per campaign. Not into the half a million like we saw in like the glory days, but tens of thousands per campaign. So that's per day. We've also seen over the past week or so, instead of doing like a business hours operation where they would kind of, do like nine to five for the local region, they're just sending 24 seven. And so that could be an indicator of somebody's a little hurt and scared, meaning I got to pump out as much of this malicious email as I possibly can before we have to shut down operations. But they're, they've gone to more of a 24 seven model um, whereas in the past, they were much more business hours focused. Yeah, right. So the uh, the threat that just will not die, Emotet. All right, Sherrod DeGrippo, thank you very much for joining us on the show uh, to do this week's sponsor interview. It's been a great pleasure to chat to you. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to talk with you too. That was Sherrod DeGrippo there with this week's sponsor interview. Big thanks to her for that. And big thanks to Proofpoint for being a major sponsor of pretty much everything we do here at Risky.biz. Um, they are extremely supportive and we do uh, so appreciate that. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week, hopefully, with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 